0: Our passage today comes from luke chapter six verse twenty seven to thirty six luke six twenty seven to thirty six If you join me in the scriptures, our text today follows right on the heels of the Beatitudes, uh, picking up on that idea that we saw. Um, Last week, in fact, if you just look at verse 22 in the scriptures, it says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So Christ told his people that the Christian is one who finds himself at odds with the world. He has a new nature. He has a new Master, He has a new kingdom that he belongs to. And this brings with it a whole new set of allegiances, a whole new set of values, a fundamentally new way of of living, which in turn brings, in many cases, uh, the animosity and the opposition of the world. We are, by nature, uh, by nature of our identity and our calling as those who belong to the Lord, uh, diametrically opposed to what the world stands for to what the world regards as precious to what the the, the world places their their hope and their treasures in our values don't accord uh, with that of the world's and so at times we find ourselves just as christ describes hated and excluded, reviled, spurned on account of the Son of Man. And we saw Jesus last week saying to his people, disciples, apostles, this is how it's always been, this is how they treated the prophets of old. Well, brothers and sisters, how should we think about these things? How should we think about living in a world where we're surrounded by those that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? They are in varying ways and degrees opposed to the conduct of our lives. They treat us as enemies, the people of God. Well, that's where Christ directs our attention to in the passage that we have under consideration today. So with God's help, if you'd turn your hearts, to the reading of his word, Luke chapter six and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Well, friends, this may be the most daunting and difficult, the most challenging passage in this book, not because it's hard to understand, not because there are interpretive difficulties here, but because it is simply so hard to apply it's so hard to carry out. If we truly have ears to hear, and you see that that is who Christ is addressing. I speak to those who who hear. If we have ears to hear, we will see, we will have to confess that what Christ is calling to us runs so much against the grain of the natural man that this is utterly impossible for us to carry out apart from total dependence on the grace of God at work in our lives. It requires constant self denial, it requires constantly confronting the tendencies of our flesh. It requires humility. It means making ourselves servants of all. The thing that that is so remarkable about this is that Jesus isn't just calling us to love our neighbors. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Most Jews could probably look at a verse like that and they could say, well, I think I can manage that. That seems reasonable enough. Though some Jews even had difficulty with that. You remember um, at one point, uh, a man coming to Christ and says, well, who is my neighbor? But in most situations, we're thinking about people that that, that look like us, they hold the same values, they live on the same street as us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That seems to be something that we can attain. Well, you cannot do that with Jesus' words here. The Jews couldn't do that, and neither can we. This is one of those radical texts, and it has the potential to really shake you up if you'll think about its implications, if you have ears to hear. the reason for that, of course, is that Jesus isn't just calling us to love people that are like us or that hold the same values as we do. He's not talking about the people that wave to you on the way to the mailbox or that sit next to you uh, when you're at the Little League game and and are happy to, to chat things up with you. We're talking about people that are openly hostile toward you on account of the Son of Man, on account of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate your guts. They hate what you stand for. They hate what you treasure. They hate what you believe. They hate the Savior that you adore. Jesus is calling us. In fact, calling is really too too weak a word. He is commanding us to love even these, to love our enemies to love the worst of our enemies now don't misunderstand what i am saying here it is not as if jesus is adding a new teaching to the scriptures here he is correcting a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. The Jews had narrowed the scope of application that the word of God had to their their lives. They took the idea of loving your neighbor and they brought its demands down to a point that was manageable, to a point that they could attain to. They brought it down to a place where When you looked at it, it was actually something quite doable. It was within reach. It didn't require very much of them. We have a way of doing that with the scriptures, don't we? We have a way of bringing down the commands, the precepts of God and bringing them to our level, uh, reimagining them, reinterpreting them in ways that allow us to stay comfortable that don't require any kind of sacrifice on our part. But in doing so, when we take that approach, the the clear teaching of scripture becomes corrupted. You can see this so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Jesus says there, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that is not in the Bible. That is not in the scriptures it's not anywhere in the new testament or in the old testament but the jews had done exactly what i'm describing here they had taken god's revealed will and they had become so accustomed to looking at it from this uh, contorted uh, skewed perspective that they missed the heart of the teaching altogether to the point that this saying and you shall hate your enemy had been enshrined In their teaching, it had been borne out in their practice. You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Go ahead, that's okay. Well, Jesus comes to correct that idea. He comes to show the true meaning of God's word. In fact, and you're welcome to turn in there, in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And you might say, well, but it's talking about the Jewish people there. He says the sons of your own people. Jesus isn't talking about his, uh, your, your enemies. Well, okay, but if you keep reading, if you keep reading until the end of the chapter, it goes on to say this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land you shall not do him any wrong you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you are strangers in the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God And you can see the principle borne out in case studies, especially in the book of of Exodus, what this looks like in practice. Exodus 23 and verse four gives us an idea. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey and it's going astray, bring it back to him, your enemy's ox or donkey. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Get down in the ditch with your enemy and help him. Come to his aid. Come alongside him. Serve him, love him in that way. So this isn't a new teaching. It's the same principle you, you find throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount in particular. Uh, Matthew, the Lord takes the sixth commandment, for example, and says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's unpacking the fuller meaning of what loving your neighbor really includes in the, in the first place. Yes, it does include loving even your enemies. Now, this would have hit uh, especially close to home with Jews that were living in the first century where conversion, turning in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ would have necessarily meant an obvious repudiation of the life of sin that characterized so many of the people who were living around you. In many cases, it would have meant having your family and your friends turning their backs on you Uh, Facing social ostracism, as is the case in many places of the world where believers are persecuted for their faith in ways that we don't experience, it would have meant immediate persecution in many situations. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, uh, Peter says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You see the dynamic? They're surprised that, they don't, that you don't hold the same values that they do, and because of that, they hate you. They malign you. Well, we can expect some measure of this as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in our own day. That is why the scriptures speak so matter-of-factly about the nature of persecution. Uh, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you. Not if, but when. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Christ told his disciples toward the end of his earthly ministry, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Friends, it's just a given. This is part and parcel with the Christian life in a world that does not recognize the lordship of our Savior. But even these, we are to love. Now, how? How are we to love our enemies? Verse 27, Jesus says, do good. Do good to those who hate you. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I don't hate my enemies. Okay, yes, but do you do them good? Do you do them good? Listen to what Romans 12 has to say. Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Lord causes people not only to reject a retaliatory spirit, not only to refuse taking vengeance into our hands, but to move from passivity to activity in the way that we do good to our enemies. Often we think of holiness uh, in terms of the things that we don't do, the things that we abstain from. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go, go with girls who do. How many of you have heard that? That is often how we think about following Christ, but holiness, understood purely and in negative terms, is only half of the picture. The Apostle Paul here says, it's not enough that we don't avenge ourselves or that we turn away from conspiring against those that have hurt us. We must do good to them. Insofar as we are able, as the Lord gives us opportunity, let us think, let us pursue their good. That is putting love for enemies in. Into practice. It was in the middle of the fourth century that Julian the Apostate, he was the last pagan uh, emperor of Rome, he was seeking to reintroduce uh, paganism into the Roman Empire. He was forced to acknowledge this, he was forced to make this concession. He said, Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, he's talking about Christians there, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. What a testimony that is. What a witness that is of the love of Christ. But this is our desire that those who do not name the name of Christ would see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, that they would come to a saving knowledge of his name. So move from passivity to activity. Do good to those who hate you. See that no one repays evil for evil, Paul says, that's the negative side, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So you do good to all without any preconditions, irrespective of whether they deserve it or not. You do good to all. So brothers and sisters, I want you to begin to take whoever it is the Lord is calling to mind now. What might seeking to do them good look like? What might actively pursuing their good for the sake of Jesus Christ look like? I trust that you see just how difficult this is. There is no denying that reality. But notice this also, that it is our, our will, it's our activity, the work of our hands that is being enjoined and called into action as we think about doing good, not our feelings, not our emotions. You, you see how this already it begins to shatter our worldly definitions of what love really is, of what love looks like. Why do so many marriages end in divorce? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. My neighbor really gets on my nerves. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here we have it amplified even further. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So love is something that can be commanded It can be called into action. Don't wait, don't sit around and wait for the warm fuzzies to hit you. Move from passivity to activity. I'm not saying that love is completely devoid of feeling or affection, but beloved, isn't it often the case that feelings follow obedience? That it's when we begin to walk in obedience to the the command of Christ that feelings follow, that the Lord begins to change and reshape uh, the disposition of our hearts to those that we're, we're struggling with. That brings us to verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Doing good speaks to our deeds. Now we're looking at our words to those who curse us, our mouths are to be filled with blessing. Again, looking at the, the book of Peter, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And yet again, we see how contrary this is to the natural man's way of thinking. That we are so prone <laughs> doing exactly what he is warning us away from, uh, to return evil for evil, to return reviling for reviling, curse for curse. We want in our flesh to lash out when we are being attacked, but the love of Christ compels us. It calls us to bless our enemies, not to curse. So are you being mistreated? Are there some in your life who uh, spitefully abuse you? Get down on your knees. Begin to pray. Take their name before the Father. Ask the Lord's favor. Plead with him that he would bestow his favor upon their life. For friends, they are lost. They do not understand what they are doing the idea of, of blessing them brings into focus this reality, the Christian's concern for the spiritual concerns, the spiritual well-being of others. Others may revile us, but we understand something that they don't, by God's grace. We understand they're dead in their trespasses and sins all they know is passing their days in malice and envy hated by others hating one another so bless them pray for them remember our lord when he was crucified how he prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do the lord our savior he perfectly fulfilled this law of god to pray for those who revile you Stephen, you'll remember, not long after our Savior, while he was being stoned, he cried out with a loud voice. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Imagine that being pummeled with stones, facing death, and interceding on behalf of your enemies. Again, you see how radical. This really is. It challenges us not only to do good deeds, but to turn our hearts toward those who despise us, to take their case before the Lord, to really pray, to lift them up, intercede on their behalf. And I'll tell you what, if you are battling bitterness, if you are Uh, dealing with offenses in your life or some other issue in a relationship that you have, resentment, anger, whatever it may be, put this into practice. Spend the next month on your knees taking your, your enemy or someone, maybe you wouldn't even use so strong of a word, but take that individual before the Lord, seek the Lord on their behalf and see what God does. See what he does in their life. See what he does to change your own heart. Verse 29, you have four illustrations of what this loving, uh, doing good, blessing, praying kind of attitude looks like in practice. First he says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Many of us will find ourselves thinking, well, does that mean that I've got to be a doormat? You know, Does that mean that I've just got to let people walk all over me all the time and treat me however they want to treat me? Well, brothers and sisters, the point here isn't that the believer necessarily goes out looking to be hurt, that he offers the cheek in order to be stricken but that love means we continue to expose ourselves to the possibility of being wronged. We don't retaliate, we don't withdraw, but we go on maintaining this posture of vulnerability, yes, even to our own hurt, as we seek to image the love of our Savior to another. Think about Paul. He goes to Iconium, and he speaks there boldly for the name of the Lord. But while he is in the city, a, a division breaks out bet, between the Jews and the Gentiles to the point that they try to stone him. So what does he do? Does he call it quits? No. He goes to the next city and he picks up where he left off. He continues to preach the gospel. Now eventually he gets to Lystra. Things get even worse there. There, there. They do stone him. And they drag him out of the city and they leave him for dead. And by God's grace, Paul gets up and what does he do the very next day? He goes back into the city and he preaches the glorious gospel of God's free grace. He exposes himself to the real possibility of hurt out of love So that is the spirit Christ is exhorting us to have. If you are slandered, if you're stricken or hated or reviled on account of the Son of Man, you go on loving. You go on loving anyway. He says, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The two words here, cloak and tunic are significant. One is the outer garment, the cloak, and then you have the the tunic, which amounts really to an undershirt. It was what was was worn against the skin. So this is a situation where you have a man who's being accosted uh, by another, probably out on the road while he's traveling or something, and someone demands your garments. What do you do? You give it to him. You don't Retaliate. You don't try to take justice into your own hands. This is speaking to the individual. God has given us the civil magistrate for the for the sake of justice. And we also need to say, and we need to say this carefully, that God is not forbidding the use of self defense. In fact, the law obliges us to do what we can to to protect and defend life. But we like to live in light of the qualifications. We like to live in light of the qualifications more than we do the general rule. And Christ is saying here, love requires that we don't withhold even your tunic. Uh, Revenge and resistance, that is not the believer's primary MO. That's not how we go about life. Next he moves from those who take things by force to to those who simply beg. From those who steal to situations where the loss of your goods is is voluntary uh, in many respects. Give to everyone who begs from you And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And again, I I wonder how many of us have all of these questions that immediately spring to our minds. Well, surely there are exceptions here. What if they use it foolishly? Does this mean that I have to give to every single person who's on every single street corner that I encounter while I'm driving along the road? Well, friends, we have to ask ourselves, are questions like these born out of a true concern for what is loving and wise, or is it something else? The point of, of this particular passage is not to size someone else up. It's not to size the person on the street corner, the beggar, uh, to, to look at their lives. Neither is it to absolutize the command to give or to provide some kind of comprehensive theology of giving. If we were going to do that, we would want to pull in other passages from other places of Scripture. Uh, is he willing to work? Are they idle, Paul says, in other places? But the stress of this passage isn't to examine others but to lay our own hearts in the balance. What kind of basic posture should the people of God have to those who are in need? Are we marked by a generous spirit? Are we compassionate? Are we kind? Are we ready to give? Do we delight to give out of the abundance of what the Lord himself has given us? All of this is summarized in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is the summary of the law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In all of your dealings with men, Filter everything through this grid as you wish others to do to you, do so to them. Now, if you look at verse 32, Jesus gives us three other illustrations to to show us just how different the kind of love we're talking about is from the love that you are going to find in the world. First, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. There's nothing distinctively Christ-like about that kind of love. Even sinners do that. They love when they're being loved in return. Everybody does that. In our natural estate, we all love Love others that love us. And we like to congratulate ourselves for how well we do at loving others. But here's the thing. That can, that can only ever be said for the natural man to those who love us in return. Now take the one who hates you. Take the one who curses and abuses, abuses you. Who strikes you on the cheek. Who takes away your goods. Love them. That is is an altogether different kind of love. Followers of Christ are are exhorted to love in a way that is far superior to the love that we see demonstrated in the world. It's not conditioned on the love of another. You see how Christ is digging even deeper here. Uh, Now he is speaking to the motivational level. What, what is compelling us? We've been, we, we're moving beyond now from the things that we do, how we regard enemies, how we love others to why? Why do we demonstrate acts of love to others? He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. We all know that there are times in our lives where from the outside looking in, it looks like we're loving people. We act in certain ways and we we do things for others that look admirable from the outside, but we recognize in our heart that we're actually driven by self-interest, that there are other things going on within the inner man and we are looking for a response out of someone else. We give in order to get, and in that way, uh, the love of the sinner is often manipulative. It's insincere it's impure. It's bent in on itself. It comes with strings attached. Now, on the positive side, what does Jesus say? Look at verse 35. Here is pure, sincere love described. No hidden agenda, no ulterior motive. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Now, it's interesting the language that Jesus uses here. You notice that he doesn't shy away from the language of reward, of receiving benefits. But the benefits that we receive don't come from other men, and they're not of this world. They come from the Lord, and they're eternal rewards. The book of Proverbs says whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deeds. We will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just. When Christ returns in glory. God is our benefactor, not man. Jesus says do these things and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Notice that he does not here say, if you do these things, you will become sons of the Most High, but rather you will be sons of the Most High. It's the same principle we saw in the Beatitudes. This is not how you come into the kingdom. This is not how you become a child of God. This is how you prove yourself to be a child of God. This is how you give evidence of your sonship. That idea of sonship is so important. Why is that so important? What's the, what's the principle here? We act like our spiritual fathers. The conduct, conduct of our lives is reflective of our spiritual fathers. Now, that is often carried out in a way that is uh, we, we falter, we, it's very halting, we're, uh, we fail in many ways, but the stamp of God's paternity is on our lives. Now, what does that mean as it pertains to our text? It says, our father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So friends, if you want to know how to treat your enemies Look at the character of God. Look at how God in Christ has regarded you. You see, that's what is bound up in all of this. It's not explicitly stated, but what he's saying in so many words is you know this yourselves. You have experienced this. You have found yourself on the receiving end of undeserved kindness. You were once in the the very position that's being described here ungrateful, evil. And so if you want to know the kind of response that's being called for in terms of how you regard your enemies, look at how God in Christ has regarded you. Consider his dealings with your soul. It's the very same principle we saw back in Leviticus 19. You yourselves were strangers in Egypt. You know what it is to be sojourners. So now let that inform your dealings with people who were in that same kind of position. How much fuller do we understand this now in the revelation of Jesus Christ? You heard it this morning. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christ is getting to the very heart of the gospel here. His free grace toward undeserving sinners. Christ has loved us, not on account of our loveliness, not because of how deserving we are, but because of his redeeming love. The Lord is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So must his sons be. Matthew uh, makes it the point there to say in, in his account that uh, he, he records Jesus as saying, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. That's what we talk about when we Uh, talk about God's common grace. God is kind, not just to believers, but to unbelievers. You know, the, the sun doesn't come out and just shine on Christian households. The rain doesn't just water the gardens of believers. God shows his kindness To all. It spills over onto all of humanity. Verse 36 Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Think about the significance of those words. You have a heavenly Father who has been exceedingly merciful to you, He has given His only Son on account of your soul. Christ came to shed his blood that you might be redeemed from your sin. Mercy has triumphed over judgment at the cross. So survey the mercies of God, which are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. How long would it take you to reckon them up? We would never come to the end. We would never come to the end. He is merciful So must his sons and his daughters be. Here really is the basis of all that we're talking about walking in the likeness of our Father. God help us in this. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, we are thankful for the way that you have shown your kindness to us as those who were so very ungrateful and evil Lord we praise you for your mercies even while we admit that we we can never fathom the magnitude of them Lord I thank you for your perfect love I thank you that Christ came to seek and save the lost that his love has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us Lord, we pray for your help in applying this word today. Lord, we ask that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, help us to take those in our lives where um, things are not all right and appropriate the truths of the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.